Hello, and welcome to AgTech So What, brought to you by the Agthentic Group. I'm Sarah Nolette. Our next guest has enjoyed the benefits of some good press and endured some pretty rough media attention too. And all the fuss was over very small, very cute sheep called the Valet Blacknose. But because we were unknowns, I think people were concerned that perhaps we were cowboys or something and we just, you know, went and did it all on our own. But of course you can't, it's not possible to do that. You have to go through the correct channels and do all the right things. That's Dr. Belinda Cardinal, who successfully imported the first Valet Blacknose sheep into Australia last year. It was no easy task. If you've ever experienced Australia's biosecurity checks at the airport, then you have a small window into just how strict the country's laws are, especially if it has anything to do with agriculture. Importing semen for livestock breeding is also extremely hard. And when Belinda first wanted to import the genetics, she copped some flack from those who claimed it would put commercial livestock farming in Australia at risk and who questioned whether importing cute sheep was actually commercially viable at all. Now, Belinda has a long waiting list of people who want to buy these sheep from her farm in southwest Victoria, even at a price tag of up to $25,000 each. But Belinda's genetics and breeding business, called CapraTech, goes far beyond just one breed of sheep. And as you'll hear, her work has been guided by a passion for animals, which all began when she was a child. My mother and my godmother had a small herd of cashmere goats, and it was sort of a a small venture that they started off and did it together, and it was a lot of fun, and I really loved the kids and I loved the the goats. So my aunt had one that used to come inside and be milked on the Moran leather couch. So sort of have had <laughs> bits and pieces of goat experience through my childhood, but then I kind of got waylaid into horses and breeding horses and other things and then um, came back full circle to finally getting the dairy goat that I always wanted when I discovered that I was and my daughter are both allergic to cow's milk. So that's where the the dairy goats finally came to the fore. (laughs) Yeah, right. And and when was that? That was a bit later, uh, a few years later you mentioned? Yeah, so that was only about 10 years ago. So. We got our first dairy goat because of the cow's milk and allergy. So we wanted just something that we could have to milk for the house and make cheese. And so she used to give us quite a lot of milk. And so we'd make cheese and yogurt and ice cream and everything else from her milk. And it was so much fun making cheese and everything. Oh, wow. I love that how you said that, like most people would realize they have the allergy and then buy goat's milk, not have a goat and start milking. That's fantastic. That, that actually was the plan. I had a pretty hectic job. And so the plan was that I would just buy goat's milk from the supermarket and easy, right? But at the time, the only goat's milk I could get was a UHT goat's milk. And I really wanted to drink it, but it smelled really bad and I couldn't stomach the smell but friends of ours had a goat and my aunt when I was a child had had goat's milk and it never smelt like that so we went and tried it and I took my daughter to try the milk and everything and she loved it so we decided well the only way we were going to get fresh goat's milk was to have a goat but the goat sort of gave us so much milk that it sort of became a job keeping up with using it because I couldn't bear to throw it away if we had too much and so just in the process of making all the cheeses and everything I really discovered that I quite enjoyed doing that and it was so much fun I thought it would be 
excellent as a job. <laughs> Turns out that's a lot of work as a job as well. Yeah, I ran a goat dairy or at least worked on one in Chile when I was backpacking over there. They had about 60 goats and I was, it was, I mean, it was a lot of work and I knew nothing about how to do anything. So I ended up, you know, chasing them down the highway because they were, there weren't fences and it was a total (laughs) mess. But even I think if it was done properly, it's, it's a good amount of work. Well, and it was for us too. It was a, a massive learning curve. I didn't know anything about goats. i only from what I had as a child, which, you know, the adults did all of the technical stuff and I just played with the baby. So I really didn't have any understanding of exactly, you know, the husbandry for goats and everything else. So I did learn a lot over the first few years and I ended up milking around 35 and selling cheese and um, milk and everything. So it worked out quite well. What was that like going from, I think you were in, you had more of an academic career, right? In, in genetics. And when you made that switch, tell me a little bit more about your career and what it was like deciding to yeah make the switch to have a go with the dairy. Yeah. Well, as a child, I was always really interested in science and had quite a science brain. So my career was a fairly straightforward scientific career where I did my degree and got my PhD and then got a job working at the university as a teaching and research academic. So I was doing research and supervising students and PhD students. And What kind of research were you doing? My original research was all in native populations of wildlife, specifically in bats. But then as I progressed through my career, I started working on the genetics of livestock. So Specifically at the time, it was alpacas. There wasn't a lot done on alpacas at the time. And so we developed the genome sequence for alpacas and all the tools to do the genetic research that we needed to do. And I had PhD students working on that stuff. And we were basically looking for commercially important traits or the genes that underlie those commercially important traits. And so we did quite a lot of work on those and lots of papers and everything. But that sort of career is, you know, long hours and hard work. And I had two young children at the time. So that was fine. And I sort of had thought that I would always be an academic all the way through to the end of my career. But the thing that changed my mind was my brother got very sick and he had uh, bowel cancer and he needed support and my parents needed some support. And I started to think that there was more to life than, you know, killing yourself at a 80 hour a week job that perhaps there was something more. And he just, my brother sort of just made me think about my priorities a bit more. And so I ended up making the decision to step back from that academic life. And I'd always, always wanted to do something with the land that we had. And I never knew what it was. And when we got the milking goat, because I was home a bit more, I discovered that that's what I wanted to use the land for. So then I geared up into the goat dairy and and cheese making and all of that stuff. I'm really sorry to hear about your brother. That sounds like some good came out of that in terms of, yeah, some, a, a shift for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And tell me about how it went with turning the goat dairy into a business. What was hard about that and what did you love? Well, the whole thing was difficult and expensive and because, you know, I had to learn about all the regulatory requirements for 
running a goat dairy. So there's a, you know, a license for being a dairy and then there's a license for being a cheese manufacturer and, and all of the hoops and things you have to jump through to get approved. But then there's the ongoing red tape as well. So there's all the record keeping and the testing of the products and all of that to make sure that everything's safe. So that was a big learning curve, just even that side of things. But then there was also the larger scale husbandry side of things. So in the end, you're sort of running around 70 animals. If you're milking 35, you've got some bucks and you've got some young stock as well. And so managing all of that was also a learning curve for me. And then we also had the added learning curve of also marketing and selling. So there were some parts of it that I was okay with, you know, the record keeping and that was all science sort of related and that was all fine and fairly easy, straightforward thing for me to do. But marketing, like I'm a scientist, marketing is not my <laughs> not my forte in any way. So marketing a cheese product and, you know, getting out and selling and, you know, doing it all at the same time, you sort of feel like you're juggling 10 balls at once and, and you know, making sure the animals are well and just the day-to-day husbandry, feeding, milking and all of that can't stop while you try and figure out what you're doing with your marketing plan and your other things. So you sort of, you do feel like you've got a few balls in the air. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We, we work with a lot of startup companies developing technology in agriculture and it always strikes me the parallels between farming businesses and startup businesses with all these balls in the air. And, you know, you really can't let any of them drop because you'll, you know, on the startup side, you might run out of money or your competitors get to market faster and there's, you know, technology and sales and often entrepreneurs are learning, you know, much of that for the first time. And yes. it's, you know, similar to starting a new farming business in, in many ways. Same. It's actually the same. Sounds very familiar. It's quite a a process, and and you have to be fairly passionate about what you're doing to to push through all of that to get out the other side and actually have it work. Yeah. And were there times where you were like, "No, this is too hard. Like, it's not worth it. Let's go back to academia." Uh no, because I really enjoyed. <laughs> I really enjoyed it most of the time. I really enjoyed everything. You know, there's always going to be something in a job that you don't enjoy. It doesn't matter what job you do, and even if you love it, to bits, there'll be always be something. But for me, I think the animals were the thing that kept me going because they're they're just so charismatic, and and I really enjoy working with animals. Anyway, I've always done something with animals, whether it's riding horses or whatever. So being able to work a job where you get to to deal with animals is mostly a good thing. There are days where you think you could get rid of the whole lot because, you know, you're just starting to get the first lactation does up on the stand and they do not want to help. Those days are not good, but they're mostly they're fine. So it's good. I love how goats have such a personality. Like it totally struck me that the one that went first always went first and the one that went last always went last. And the one that did this, you know, always tapped her, you know, whatever here, like they, they truly are like individual creatures, which I was really surprised by. Yeah, they all, they all do have their own personalities very much so. And we do have a similar system here. They all know the order in which they come in and it's not one that we've imposed on them. That's, you know, just the bossy ones go first and the quieter ones go last and but they all have their own particular personalities. We've got a couple of real classics here. There's a, a doe here that knows how to use tools. So she uses Gosh. sticks to scratch herself. And they've all got their funny little quirks that we know them all by name. 
Yeah, definitely. What did you kind of learn either about yourself or about business in kind of making this transition from being an academic to being a a business owner? Well, I learned that, you know, we are generally more capable than we give ourselves credit for. So at the time when I shifted over, you know, I think you do have that self-doubt. You're not sure whether it's actually going to work out. And it was a bit scary, the whole process. And at the time, my husband, he wasn't as sure about it. I was pretty sure. I did all the sums and practically and in my head, it all made sense. But I don't know whether that was sort of clouded by, you know, my desire to want to do it and my passion for it rather than yeah. actual common sense and <laughs> um, real correct numbers. But I did do the numbers and thought it would be workable and everything, but it did work out. So I was sort of, pleasantly surprised in a way that something that I'd planned had worked out as well as it did. And and it sort of gave me a lot of more confidence in trying other things. So which was really fortunate because it's led on to further projects that I don't know if I would have done them in the past, but having done this step, like it was sort of like this was a little stepping stone from academia to a little business. And then, you know, we've stepped on from that. So that was just sort of yeah. That's, I love that. And it's advice that I have been given and often give, like the view is always different once you climb the first hill and like yes. you'd never climb the second hill or the third mountain, you know, if you didn't climb the first one, but the view is always different. So that really resonates. I love that. So one of the other things I know you guys expanded to was a semen importing and exporting business. Was that kind of the next step and, and how did that come about? Yeah. So because of my genetics background and I have bred horses in the past, I was really quite keen on genetics and quite keen on improving the herd. And I really loved the the dairy goats in the USA. So I'd been importing dairy goat genetics from the USA and that wasn't an easy feat either. There'd been one other guy that had done it before me in the last, you know, 100 years, but it was still quite a new new proposal. So we I worked love that. Through- So I just have to interrupt you because you're like, oh, you know, one person has done this in a hundred years. It's like, well, that's, that's pretty impressive that you decided to do it too. Well, dairy goats had really haven't been imported into Australia since the first imports. There, there was some done, you know, quite a number of years. I'm not sure exactly how long ago, maybe 80 years ago or something. And there was quite a lot of genetics brought in. And then from that, people have just bred what we have. And the Importing laws changed in around the 1950s because of an outbreak of, we actually had an outbreak of scrapie, I think, and a couple of other things had come into the country with some live animals that had come in. And so they kind of really clamped down on the restrictions and really it made it seemingly virtually impossible to do. And so there had been a guy that in the past, probably about, I don't know, 12 years ago or something, he had had a go and brought in semen from a few bucks. You're not allowed to bring in any live animals anymore. So having seen that that could be done, a friend of mine and I decided that we really love the Toggenbergs that are in America and having bred horses where if you want to improve your horses, you go to the best stallion in the world and you can get it from anywhere. I just figured you'd just go and get, you know, the best bucks from America. But it turns out that the restrictions and the requirements for importing are so strict that that's a really, really difficult thing to do. So it probably took two or three years to get our first import here and we brought in a few semen from a few Toggenberg bucks from some of the top herds over in America and they've made a massive difference to 
the herd here now. And I'm really proud of the herd that we've developed here. But that process, you know, I sort of did that just for myself because I really love the goats over there and I just wanted to have some of my own. And it sort of assisted the dairy business because, you know, we were getting better production and basically better goats. And I was able to sell stud bucks to people because we had something that was a bit different to what was here already. Belinda plays it down, but it's really been her ability to handle the red tape and engage in the diplomacy needed to import livestock genetics that have been key to her success. And there's good reason for such strict biosecurity laws in Australia. As an island nation, Australia has been able to avoid many of the diseases that wreak havoc in other countries. For example, Australia doesn't have scrappy, a fatal disease affecting the nervous system of sheep and goats. And so there's very, very strict requirements. And what that has done for Australia is it's protected us and all of our industries from those diseases and losses caused by those diseases. So it's really important to keep our herds clean. And, you know, I definitely don't ever want to be the person forever remembered as the one that brought in some horrible disease. So it's something that we're really careful about and really careful about how we select animals. But the actual ability to import semen and embryos from other countries is also really vital because, as you can imagine, when you have an isolated population of goats on in Australia, there's only so long that you can continue to breed within that small gene pool without causing yourself some issues. I mean, Australia is a very big place, but all of the bloodlines sort of stemmed back to something that was quite close, genetically speaking. So they were sort of starting to think that this could be a problem. And so I just figured, well, why don't you just import something? But the way that we have to import things means it's really, really difficult. So the requirements for Australia are more strict for sheep and goats than they are for any other livestock species. Oh, well, except for pigs, which you can't just can't import anything at all. So for cattle, you can import semen from a bull from America and you can just bring it over and use it in your cows and that's fine. And Does it just come in the mail? <laughs> no, it's um, it has to come in a liquid nitrogen tank. So it's a dangerous goods, often a dangerous goods shipment, which has to be carefully treated and you hope that it's carefully treated because if it's tipped over, the entire contents will be lost. And we've had that happen as well. But it has to come through the quarantine centre. So they check that what's on the paperwork is what's in the tank. And we have to go up and meet them and go through the tank with them and prove that everything that's coming in is all perfect. For goats and sheep, it's even more stringent than that. So for goats and sheep, the animals come into the centre They need to be tested on their own home farm first. They come into the centre and they get tested again. They do 30 days isolation in the centre and then you can start collecting semen. And at the end of the process, more tests are carried out to make sure the buck is completely healthy. And one of those post-tests requires that the animal is euthanised to do the final test. So we can never go back and get more semen from that buck, whereas someone importing cattle semen can go back and get more of that bull if they want to. So it it makes our importing a really, really difficult thing. And so 
we don't do it unless we really, really think that that buck is really going to make a difference here. And we don't do it unless we get a lot of straws from that buck because we know we'll never be able to do it again. So it's oh, wow. quite a quite a stringent process and a lot of people don't understand the extent to which we have to go to make sure that we keep our country safe of diseases, but it is a really important process to go through that. The tricky semen importations Belinda had done in the past, however, were nothing compared with the process of bringing the Valet Blacknose to Australia from the UK. Belinda had first seen the animals on a UK TV program. With their shaggy coats and black markings on their face and feet, the Valet have been described as looking kind of like Disney characters. They're very much a native hill sheep, and so they hadn't really been changed that much over many centuries, probably. So they'd sort of been in Switzerland originally for a long, long time, and no one sort of knew they were there until, except obviously the Swiss, but then people started to recognise them as being quite an iconic-looking, cute sheep, and so they've kind of made their way around the world, and they're sort of found now in... um, The UK has got a large population. They're all sort of through Europe, also New Zealand and the USA has got some as well. And so in Australia, we had a lot of people that were interested in them and lots of people had said how wouldn't it be amazing if they could come here and, you know, that they were interested in them bringing. I just kept hearing it over and over and over again. And so I did that whole thing where I went, well, why doesn't someone just import them? And I thought, oh, well, maybe we'll try and do it. So we went through the process again to do that and that was, it took four years from the start to getting it approved to come in and then actually getting them here. And again, the same process is required for importing sheep into Australia. So, and I should say too that for importing sheep and goats into Australia, there are literally only two places that we can get them from. It's either Europe or USA. There are no other countries that we're allowed to import sheep or goats from because of diseases around the world so there's quite a limited limited opportunities for importing and the other difficult thing about importing sheep and goats especially sheep into Australia is that that the disease I mentioned before scrapie sheep do have differing susceptibilities to scrapie so there are sheep that have a resistance gene and there's sheep that have a susceptibility gene And the Australian government only wants us to import animals that are susceptible to scrapie. And the reason that they want that is because if the animal is susceptible to scrapie and one of the other requirements for us is that the animal is over five years of age, if they are susceptible and they're over five years of age, they should show signs of the disease by that time. And so if they don't show any signs, we know that they're susceptible, they're over five years of age and they don't show any signs, then they probably are clear of the disease. And so we're still required to test for it at the end, but we can be more confident that that animal will pass the test at the end. The difficulty for most people that are importing is that all around the world, everywhere else is breeding resistant animals and they are actually culling all of the susceptible animals. And so the vast majority of sheep breeds in the UK literally no longer have any susceptible animals left in the population because they had a big scrapie eradication program where they 
basically paid farmers to cull all the susceptible animals so that there's only resistant animals in the UK, which means that it's quite difficult (laughs) to find an animal that's actually eligible to be brought to Australia. Wow. That must have been challenging to overcome <laughs> all of that. And even some of the articles that I saw were were sort of not controversial, but maybe you got a bit of flack for, for even thinking about doing this. People were worried perhaps about that safety aspect. Oh, yes, absolutely. There'll be a lot of people that a lot of people that weren't very happy about the process is because basically because they don't understand the process and they don't understand the extent to which the Australian government requires us to test animals in order to be absolutely sure that they're free of the diseases. Like I said, you know, nobody wants to be the person that brings in a terrible disease into a country that doesn't have it. And so, you know, we only do it according to exactly to the rules, of course, and we want to make sure that we don't bring it in. I don't want that disease in my animals and I don't want to bring it in for anyone else. So the way that the Australian government goes about it it's it's you know they're very sure that everything is fine unfortunately I think a lot of the people that have been worried about it don't understand it and there's particularly there was one person that that did say a few things in an interview and said how terrible it was going to be for the industry and everything but in actual fact this is something that the Australian industry needs they need to be able to import new genetics to improve herds and to advanced breeding in Australia it's very difficult to do it and in for some breeds it's physically impossible at this time because of that resistance and susceptibility issue but really I think we start to lag behind the rest of the world if we don't look at importing new bloodlines and new improved genetics. Yeah do you think there's also pushback because of like a bit of Well, I can imagine two other pushback. One, like kind of tall poppy, you know, just the you're having a go and and other people don't always love that or maybe feel threatened. And then another one sort of they're not maybe as commercial from like a production, you know, large scale farming operation perspective. Do you think either of those kinds of pushback played out at all? Oh, absolutely. I think there is a tall poppy thing. And especially since I'm not somebody that is well known in the sheep industry. So because it's really interesting to note that. There was an import of sheep around 15 years ago. We didn't even make the papers. They imported some genetics of a few breeds that came in. Charolais was one and there was a a couple of other breeds that came in around the same time. And, you know, it really didn't make any news whatsoever. And it was probably because the people that did it were people that were known in the sheep industry and they were accepted as, you know, that was okay. But because we were unknowns, I think people were concerned that perhaps we were cowboys or something and we just, you know, went and did it all on our own. But of course you can't, it's not possible to do that. You have to go through the correct channels and do all the right things. And in addition, like I've been importing dairy goat genetics for the past 10 years and that's never made the papers or any news or anything. The only reason that this breed did make the papers is because there's really cute photos to go along with the story so it makes for a really nice headline you know when you've got a nice photo to go along with it and so but really I mean there's there's a bit of that pushback about them not being commercial however they're probably more commercial than your your average normal commercial sheep in terms of their value at the current time but they're 
just because they are not commercial doesn't mean that all importing should be banned. You know, just because one person doesn't value a breed doesn't mean that that breed doesn't have a value to other people. So I think to sort of try and control what other people do based on whether you think it's commercial or not is sort of a, an odd an odd way of thinking to my understanding. Yeah, I love, I was talking about sort of parallels to entrepreneurs in the technology world. And it strikes me that that's something that they face as well, where you're sort of pushing the envelope, maybe challenging the status quo. People are trying to cut you down. But when you find that specific niche where you really have customers that you're adding value to them, even if it's not how other people have added value to their customers, like that's how you build a business. Even if people, you know, it's not how they don't have how they've done it before. Yeah, that's right. And the response to them coming in has been literally overwhelming. I cannot make enough ballet black nose sheep to satisfy the market. And I don't think I will for another 10 or 20 years. It's, it's like completely overwhelming. So you know, for someone to say that they're not commercial, they might not be, but, you know, in terms of selling their fleece or or their meat, but, you know, they'd be pretty expensive chops right about now. So I don't, I don't think we'll be looking at that as an option for some time to come. Although, interestingly, if people were brave enough to open their minds to new breeds, we have had one breeder who started up with the breeding up program and what they've done is they've taken the semen straws and they've inseminated their composite sheep, which they grow normally for meat. And they're trying to start a little little boutique breeding up program alongside their commercial production. And they've got children and they wanted the kids to become involved in the breeding. And so they've got these valet black nose sheep to get them started. So that's all fun. And they did it, you know, about 40 or 50 ewes to get going. And the husband rang me the other day and was chatting about the sheep and how well the lambs were growing. And he said, he cannot believe how fast these lambs grow. And he said, if people were looking at something that they wanted down the track in the future, that these would actually be fantastic for production because they can't believe the speed at which they grow compared to his normal composite lambs. Mm. So although they're very cute sheep, you know, they were bred as a dual purpose breed for a long time in Switzerland. And maybe there was a reason why. Really interesting. Just jumping back to when you first brought the genetics in, how did you actually bring the sheep to life? Was there an initial birth? Like how did that happen? And what was that like? Okay. So we took the frozen embryos and we synchronized the ewes and implanted the embryos into a surrogate mother, basically. And then those uh, embryos, if we were lucky, they took in the mother and grew into lambs and we had our first purebred valet black nose lambs born here in April of this year. So that was exciting time. Yeah. What was that like? Well, it's taken four years to get them here and the first ones on the ground, it was amazing, you know, feeling of elation, but also of relief, you know, that we finally got something on the ground because the cost to get them here has been astronomical. We have had experience with goat embryos in the past that hasn't been as wildly successful as the sheep embryos were. So we were kind of really worried that we just wouldn't get anything out of it, you know, that we just, the embryos wouldn't work and frozen embryos are 
a bit tricky to make them work, but we were lucky and we've probably averaged about a 60% success rate with the embryos, which is really good. And so it was kind of a feeling of relief more than anything that (laughs) it worked and we actually finally got there. So now we've got the lambs on the ground. That's fantastic. It's so exciting. But now it's this sort of overwhelming feeling of responsibility that you now have to keep that lamb safe and (laughs) you have to nurture it through till it can breed. And it's sort of this ongoing process. It's sort of excitement and then practically thinking, you know, you've still got a lot of work ahead of you. Yeah. I love that. Again, similar to many, you know, startup entrepreneurs, which like I wasn't sort of planning to draw these parallels, but it just strikes me that that, yeah. that persistence element of like, you know, four years, astronomical costs, and then finally you realize that result. And then sometimes that's still when the real work starts, you, know, exactly. you built your technology, <laughs> you brought it to life from the science, and then you, you got to still sell it and build the business. And yeah, that's it right. It never ends. <laughs> no, that's right. And we, you know, we had, um, I think we ended up with 26 lambs born on the, like actually live lambs on the ground. And we were lucky because every single pregnancy that held and made it through to the end of the pregnancy was, we actually got every single lamb out alive. So we were really proud of that record. I think we put in 45 embryos in total and we ended up with 26 lambs, which was fantastic. Now it's the next part of the process. So now we have to develop the breed we will need to keep importing new bloodlines because we brought in genetics from three rams but obviously that's not going to build a breed here so we do have more rams being collected at the moment to continue the breed on so it's sort of now a responsibility to nurture the breed and and let it become established here in australia and are people mostly buying them as pets oh yeah absolutely we had a few rams that were born that i didn't think were good enough to be breeding rams And so we weathered them and we sold them as pets. So the people that have them are absolutely over the moon and think they're the luckiest people in the world. So we have also people that are doing the breeding up program that have 50% weathers and they are also being sold as pets and people are ecstatic. So can you tell me roughly what they cost just to get a sense of price? Well, we sold the purebred weathers for $7,000 each. The first cross weathers are being sold for anywhere between five hundred and two and a half thousand dollars, depending on their markings and their confirmation and things like that. We've sold a few, a handful, about four purebred breeding stock, and we've sold them for twenty five thousand dollars each. My gosh! Well, there you go. People saying it's not commercial can have a look at that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. One of the things I noticed, I don't know if you're on Twitter, Belinda, but there's the annual sheep poll that happens on Twitter and the valet took out the Merino in the first round. Were you following that? (laughs) Well, I didn't know about it actually until it was too late. We actually got told about it right at the end. And the the Suffolk people do a lot of work using Sean the sheep as their uh, mascot for Suffolk. And yeah, valet Blacknose did okay, but I think we might do better next year when, you know, people are a bit more aware that they're actually here in the country. So we might have to work on that one. That's right. And it was close with the Suffolk. I think it was only one vote. And I mean, you know, that's controversial. Maybe we need a recount. Yeah, I think so. I think we should. I think we should. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So the more they're sort of well-known here, I think the more popular they'll become because it's not only, a lot of people don't realize, but it's not only how they look, but they also have a very much different personality than 
than your average sheep. A lot of um, people don't realise, but they are very much more like a dog. We've got one lady that bought one of the weathers and she's trained him to do his advanced trick title already. And he's he's not even a year old yet. What does that mean? Like he can fetch or something or he can... Yeah, he can do all sorts of tricks. He can sit and he can go backwards and it's amazing what he can do. He goes sideways and she's taught him to go under things and do the weaving that the dogs do and all of that. He's like she can't believe how quickly she said he's learned more quickly than anything else she's ever trained and she's trained oh all sorts of stuff. So, you know, every every breed has their pros and cons and advantages and disadvantages and I think these guys have got a lot going for them and there seems to be a lot of interest so I think that they'll they'll be here for a long time to come that's so cool Belinda I guess last question for you you mentioned some learnings initially from the goat dairy and and that experience what have you learned from this one any any reflections on running a business or or personally as well I think this one really took the cake for persistence and drive to get it right through to the end (laughs) but in terms of my learning has probably opened my eyes to this sort of situation of what other people can do to your business so you know what the views of someone else can do and what a news story can give you as an advantage and also what it can do as a disadvantage and it's amazing how those outside forces that you might not have expected can play into your business those first few articles that that came up there was an article that was written early on when the semen and embryos first arrived in Australia and I was disappointed in the article but it actually gave us a lot of publicity (laughs) so (laughs) it actually really kind of worked well in the end and and I was disappointed by it at the start but then I kind of figured that you know, it hadn't stopped the interest. It didn't stop people from contacting us to find out more about the breed and to to get hold of what they wanted. So, you know, although I thought it was a bad thing at the start, it actually turned out to be fine. So one of the things I've learned is just to sort of roll with the punches. So, you know, things hit you that you don't expect, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of everything. And (laughs) I thought that would have really impacted our business but it really has made no difference whatsoever which is great and that's it for another episode of ag tech so what thank you to our guest dr belinda cardinal founder of CapraTech, and of course thank you for listening for more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast visit our website agtechsowhat.com you'll also find pictures of the super cute sheep there too i'm sarah nolette catch you next time